Good morning. Good morning. Hey, I hope you're coming in off of a good week. If you're a guest with us, I want to welcome you. I'm grateful that you're here this morning. We, uh, one of the things we value here as a church is uh, walking through, preaching through books of the Bible. And so a few weeks ago, the beginning of the year, we launched uh, what will be, uh, though we'll take a couple breaks and study some Old Testament things, uh, it'll be a year in the book of Acts. And so I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, you can grab that Bible, um, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. And uh, if you uh, would like a, something to take notes with, we sell these Acts journals at cost. We don't make anything on them. We're just getting them so that you can have them in your hands. And throughout this series, you're able to take notes and study the text with us. One of the values we have is biblical authority. So we just want to study scripture. So you're hearing from scripture and not just uh, from us. You're hearing what God has to say. Um, so keep that in mind. Now, in addition to you filling out that Connect card uh, that we mentioned earlier, where you can put your prayer requests on the card, and you can submit those, and we'll be praying uh, for them, I want us to start out with uh, a different prayer request. When the church gathers, uh, we pray. And so uh, there is a church family that is hurting down in Seymour, Indiana, this morning. Uh, Allison Williams, uh, she's single, 36 years old, was their youth minister, and she unexpectedly passed away last week. Um, and so this morning, they gather with a lot of pain. It's a sister church of ours, um, uh, the Reddington Christian Church in Seymour. I actually went to Bible college with Allison at Johnson Bible College. Um, and so I want us to start out just lifting up this church family, asking God to bless them this morning as they gather together uh, just south of us here. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that even uh, when life is not good to us, and we experience pain and suffering, you're still good. In your sovereignty, God, you can take this pain and you can bring good from it, but right now it just hurts. And so my prayer is that you would wrap your arms around these hurting families, these young people that are missing, someone who has had such a tremendous impact on their lives. I pray you'll be with Allison's family. I pray that you would bless them as only you can. Give them a peace that your word describes as going beyond our understanding. Let them know that many are praying for them, and we lift them up to you, trusting that you know what's best, that you care for them deeply in a way we can't even imagine. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a little difficult to shift from that, but we're going to go ahead and do that. Um, this past uh, midway through December, um, uh, an older gentleman in Florida uh, made a phone call to his son living in Michigan. And the uh, son answers, and they're having uh, conversations. And the dad reveals to the son, son, we, your mother and I are going to get divorced. And uh, the son is taken aback. He's shocked by this. And he asks, dad, why, like, what are you doing? Why would you do this? He said, I just, 43 years of misery is enough. <laughs> I just can't take it anymore. I can't stand uh, right now the relationship that we're in. And so I want you to, uh, to understand. Uh, I don't even want to talk about it anymore. So you can call your sister in California. You can tell her and hang up. The son is just thrown, thrown off by this. So he calls his sister in California, explains everything to her. She reacts a little different. She's a little frustrated by it. And so she says, oh, no, they're not. She turns around and calls uh, her parents in Florida, gets her dad on the phone, and says, Dad, you are not doing this. Uh, my brother and I, we will be there tomorrow. I want you to understand right now that you're not to sign a paper. You're not to meet with anybody. You're not to do anything. Do you understand? Hangs up. And then the gentleman leans over to his wife and says, hey, the kids are coming home for Christmas, and they're paying their own airfare. <laughs> We had to start out lightening the mood just a little bit as we jump into a little bit more of a heavy, maybe serious text this morning in our study through Acts. 
But there are times in your life where something gets your attention. The question that's posed to you, a truth that's presented to you, kind of shocks you, gets you, shocks your system. And man, what you weren't paying attention to before, because we can sometimes be distracted and we can have uh, difficulty come our way and we can just uh, honestly avoid certain things until we can't avoid it any longer. And something just gets your attention. This is what happens in Acts chapter 2. If you remember, we started the series just a, a few weeks ago. And uh, Acts is a history book written from a medical doctor to his wealthy friend. Uh, the medical doctor's name is Luke, and he's writing to his friend Theophilus. And he didn't just write the book of Acts. He wrote a gospel, uh, the gospel of Luke. And his intention in writing these was to gather all the research. It's almost like a journalistic research project. He wants to gather all of the research, so he interviews all of the witnesses, and he gathers all of the facts, and he checks all of the details, and then he puts it in this orderly account so he can present it to his friend Theophilus. So Theophilus, and he tells us this in Luke chapter 1, can have confidence in everything he's heard about Jesus. He wants him to know this happened, and here's how it happened. Well, in his second volume, uh, he gathers all the research, witnesses, uh, interviews all the witnesses, gets all of the details, gathers it together to give Theophilus a very ordered, detailed account of the early church. He says, I want you to understand what took place as this, as this began to happen. And uh, he includes in that what I would say is the most pivotal verse in the entire book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Right before he ascends to heaven, Jesus looks at his disciples and he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that power is going to enable you to be my witness. My witness is in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And so Acts chapter 1, verse 8 kind of becomes our, our launching point for everything that takes place in the rest of the book of Acts. Well, last week, David walked us through how the Holy Spirit actually did come upon, in a very unique and special way, those first apostles. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and now they're empowered the way Jesus told them that they would be. And they stand up and begin to speak to a crowd that came from all different regions of the world. And these Galilean fishermen begin to speak, and everybody hears it in their own language, and they hear it in such a way that it's extremely educated like it was their first language. Well, this throws the crowd off, as David explained to us last week, and this throws them off, and they begin to think, how in the world is this even possible? Oh, we know what it is. They're drunk. They've been drinking too much. Everybody gets together. Every time at Pentecost, someone takes things too far, and they, they're just trashed, and so that's what's going on here. Well, now we're going to pick up the story where Peter stands up, and he begins to address the accusation. And then he lays out what's really going on and explains to the crowd what is really happening. And so there's a shift here that takes place. Honestly, for the sake of our time, uh, this uh, interaction goes from Acts chapter 2, verse 14, all the way to verse 41. We're not going to walk slowly through all that. I'm going to summarize for you Luke's description of Peter's sermon. And I love that it's Peter. Same guy who used his words to betray Jesus three different times who got himself into trouble three different times and just abandoned Jesus, but then Jesus restores him, and now he stands up, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and preaches the first gospel message. And so in Acts chapter 2, uh, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it. We're going to walk through this summary style, just his um, sermon here. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14 through 21, Peter stands up and he summarizes from the book of Joel what's going on in front of these people. So right away, he says, hey, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, guys. Like, we're not drunk. Okay, we don't get drunk anyway, but it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Like, come on. This doesn't make sense. This is a, a gathering, uh, a sacrificial gathering where we're coming to bring all of our attention to Jesus. We won't be drinking, and, and we're not drunk here. What's taking place, and he quotes from Joel chapter 2, a text his audience would have been familiar with. And he says there was a promise, there was a prophecy 
that was given that indicated that salvation would eventually be made available to all people. And he says the the reason for this, and you'll read this in verses uh, 14 through 21, the reason for the need of the salvation is that judgment's coming on sin. And he lays it out. He says, man, this, the, your sin has separated you from God and the wrath of God is going to come down on sin and it's going to be a really bad day. And then in verse 21, he quotes from the Old Testament and he says, but those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And what he's saying there in verse 21 is those who don't stay in their sin but turn to God, they're going to be saved. Then in, verses 22, then in verse 22 through 24, he's going to explain what does that mean. Like, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? What does it mean to turn to God? And look what he says in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up. If you're someone who takes notes, you can circle that. God raised him up is a phrase you're going to read over and over again throughout the book of Acts. It's, it's a theme of Luke's that God did this. God is the one working. God is the one responsible for this. Loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he says, look, wrath is coming. Punishment for sin is coming. But if you'll turn to God through Jesus because he resurrected from the dead, because death could not stop him, if you'll turn to God through Jesus, you can be saved from that coming wrath. He kind of lays it out for him. Well, then in verse 25 through 35, he points back to another prophecy that they would have been very familiar with. He goes back to the book of Psalms where a prophecy that David speaks of that was given to David, where God told King David, I am going to send a descendant in your line that will one day sit on a throne and he will not be overcome by death. Well, Peter uses this, and he says, look, this is what the prophecy was, that there is, a, there is somebody coming who will resurrect from the dead, and he will ascend to the right hand of the Father and sit on a throne forever. And that prophecy, as you know, this is what Peter would have been saying to the crowd, as you know, was given to King David. But hey, pop quiz, where's David? That's what he says. He's dead, and he's still dead, and he's not come back to life. And so Peter says, the prophecy wasn't about David. The prophecy was about Jesus. The prophecy is that Jesus came. Jesus overcame death. Jesus is sitting on the throne. Jesus will last forever. And he's the only way you're going to escape the wrath that's coming, the judgment that is coming. It's through Jesus. And that's the only way you can do it. And then he kind of takes this truth sword and jabs it even deeper into him in verse 36. Look at how he says it. Let all the house of Israel, so he's speaking, everybody here, there would have been a Jewish audience. All the house of Israel know for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, and then he essentially just points right to him, whom you crucified. And I love that because he just laid it all out for him. He said, here's the, here's the deal. Wrath is coming. You need to be saved. The only way to be saved is through Jesus. You need to come to Jesus, or you've got a big problem on your hands. You killed him. God raised him, and God provided a way for you to be saved from the punishment that's coming because of your sin. And then the text tells us, like, whoa, they're kind of shocked by this. He just lays it out for them, uh, plain as day. And verse 37 says this, now when they heard this, when they had listened to everything Peter had laid out for them, this full message, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, what must we do? How do we respond to this? Cut to the heart literally means to be stabbed or pierced. This is the kind of truth that you encounter that gets your attention. 
The kind of truth that says, I can't go on anymore until there's a solution to the problem that was just presented to me. I can't live my life normally anymore. I'm not just going to go about my day. This is just another thing I heard, and I don't really need to respond to it. No, you've just told us that we are the ones that killed him. It was our people that put him on the cross. The long-awaited Savior of the world was murdered by us. We have to respond to this. I can't go on any longer until something changes in my life. How do I fix this problem, Peter? How do we fix this? What do we do? I want you to notice something else, too. Notice what they, how they did not respond. None of them said, hey, Peter, man, if this is true, I better go get my life together. I got to go work on some stuff, man, and then I'll come back here. Now, in, in my years of ministry, uh, one of the best parts of my job, I love this about ministry, is people. I just love spending time with people. And I, over the years, I've had the opportunity to sit with people and walk them through difficulty and struggle. And I'll tell, I'll tell you this. I, I tell people this, too. I hate when people hurt, but I like being on their speed dial when they do. And so sitting there across the table, what I've noticed is a lot of times when people are confronted with their sin and what their sin is doing to their life or has done to their life, the natural response is to retreat or withdraw. They want to retreat. They want to withdraw. And we say things that are really foolish, right? I, I'm guilty of this myself, and, and maybe you are as well. Man, if that's true... I'm going to go get my life together, and then I'll come back to church. Let me work on a few things, and when I get things together, then I'll come back, and I'll be in the church. But none of these people responded that way when they heard this. This is an important truth in our self-help, feel-good culture that's infiltrating the church. When the weight of your sin hits you, and it gets your attention, the response is not to retreat and withdraw. It's to say, I, I can't go on any further. What's the solution here? Because here's the thing. If you could fix your life, then there's no reason Jesus leaves heaven and dies on a cross for your sin. There's no purpose. The whole message of Christianity is this. You can't fix what sin has broken in your life. You can't. You're not capable of it. No amount of effort, no amount of trying hard, no amount of perfection achieved is going to get you what only Jesus can get you. And that's saving you from the punishment that is coming for a sin. And it hits them and they're cut to the heart. And that's how they come to Peter. They say, what do we do to alleviate this problem? And Peter responds to them. Look at verse 38. Peter says to them, you want to know how to solve this problem? Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39. For this promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So Peter responds to this question with as simple an answer as the question is itself. How do we fix this? Repent and be baptized so that you can have your sins forgiven and you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But if you've been in church for like, I don't know, 10 minutes, you know that there's a lot more discussion around this than simply, oh yeah, it's simple, let's just do what it says. Lots of discussion. And so we're going to camp out here for a minute, but I want you to hear my heart. I want you to hear where I'm coming from with this. I just want to present what the Bible says. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't become a Christian until my senior year of high school. And uh, I believe the church is God's plan A. And so I want to raise my kids in, in the church. I want them to be a part of a healthy church where they develop healthy relationships and they grow up. And I praise God every day for this place. But one of the small advantages, not that it was a great thing, but a small advantage to not growing up in the church is that when I was presented the gospel... It didn't come with a lot of church history or baggage. It didn't come with a denominational affiliation. It just came with, what does it say? What does it say? And that's always been my approach. I just want to present, what does the Bible teach? 
And so as we jump into this response and we kind of study it a little bit slower, how Peter calls them to respond to the gospel, I want you to know that I am in no way trying to negate any experience you've had in your life prior to today. You're going to hear me present what the Bible says, and you may have questions swirling in your mind about what about this and what about that. God is God. He can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, to whoever he wants, and whatever manner he wants to do it. He's God. But our confidence in what he does do comes from what the Bible says, not just from what we experience. And so what the Bible actually says is where I get my confidence. I know God can do anything, but what does he tell me he does do? And so as Peter responds to them, he says, here's two things you do and two promises you receive. The two things, repent and be baptized, and you get your sins forgiven, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's kind of answering these two questions that kind of come out of the text. How do I respond, and why should I respond? How do I respond, and why should I respond? Well, how? He says, first off, repent. Repenting is coming to the understanding of what your sin has done to you and God. There is absolutely, every time you study the word repent in the Bible, there is a connection to the feeling of sorrow and guilt. Every time. When we repent, I, I feel sorrow and guilt for what I've done to God, and I recognize now, as I repent of what I've done, that my life now needs to go in a direction it wasn't headed in before this. And so it's, it's that idea that my life is going to turn 180 degrees and go in the opposite direction of where I've been heading because where I was heading was destroying my relationship with God because of sin. And so he says, you have to repent. You have to recognize your need to do that. Feel that. And then he says, you need to be baptized. And the word that he uses there is a Greek word, baptizo. In fact, almost every single time you read this, it's a form of that word. I mean, it is a form of that word. Every time you read it in the New Testament, it is a form of the word baptizo. And baptizo means this, to immerse. Every single time the Bible mentions baptism, it means to fully immerse, to go underwater, to dunk. And so he says you need to be immersed in baptism as well. Now, uh, the, the, way, the, the reason why we do this, he lays out, is why should I respond? I, get, I need to repent. I need to be baptized. But why am I doing this? He says, because if you do this, you will receive. It's for the forgiveness of sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's an interesting way to put it. There's a really key word. If you're someone who takes notes, you can write this down as well. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, when he says, repent, be baptized, for, that word for is the Greek word ice. If you were to transliterate that into English, you would just put it E-I-S, not I-C-E. <laughs> E-I-S, it's, it's a word. Some people would, will say only of Acts 2.38, and that's as, as far as I can tell. They'll say of Acts 2.38, you should translate that word not for, even though every time, if you were to say what is the purest definition of ice in the English language, you would say uh, in order that for the purpose of. That's what the word means. They would say of this verse, you should uh, translate it because. And so the text would read, um, Repent, be baptized, because your sins are forgiven and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The problem is, I really do think that is a very irresponsible and unjust way to translate the word. Ice is used 1,767 times in the New Testament. That's how many times the word appears. And every time you translate it, the best translation is, for the purpose of, or in order that. Or, to simplify it, you would say, for. This is for this. Let me give you one example. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. Jesus at the Last Supper said this. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for, there's our word, ice. So you would say for the purpose of the forgiveness of sins. Now, if we were to take the translation that is that, uh, for, and we were to say, it's no, it's actually because, and we were to impose it on this, which nobody does, the text would read this way. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out because the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, most everybody would agree it's absolutely ridiculous to say that Jesus poured out his blood on the cross because our sins were already forgiven. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. And so to be true to the text, you would translate it. You would translate it for, for the purpose of. And so you put that in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and he says, you will repent, be baptized for the purpose of your sins being forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm also a logical guy. I just think logically, and part of that's my upbringing. I just kind of come to, hey, I just logically want to ask a question here. Let's go back to the question that was posed to Peter before the response. Okay, just, just track with me here. The question that this group of Jewish people ask is, what do we do? How do we respond? They are not logically asking a question to get an answer for something that had already happened. Right? They don't say, would you please uh, tell us what to do after we're saved? Like, he didn't say that. He said, tell us, what, how do we fix the problem that you just put in front of us? You got our attention. What am I supposed to do? They are not asking for a, a previous state of being. They're saying, answer the question for the future state of being that we're about to encompass. We're asking for a future condition, not something that happened in the past, just logically speaking. That's, now, unfortunately, some people leave this really vague. A lot of preachers and teachers will teach on baptism, and they're going to leave it vague without being specific. Some teach it completely different. That's one thing, but there are a lot that just leave the waters muddy. Just muddy enough for you to not quite sure where do you, what, so, so what is it you're saying? Where does baptism fit in this whole prop, uh, purpose? Like, what is the process here? Where is baptism in the process of becoming a Christian? Where does it fit? I want you to notice, though, um, if they are teaching it vague, if someone's being vague about the role of baptism, it is not because the text is vague or unclear. The Bible is very clear about where baptism fits. In fact, I want to encourage you this way. Uh, there's a tool you can use to study this on your own. I don't want you to just come in here and say, well, Rob said. Just, just do this for me. You can get an online concordance or a physical book, a concordance. All it's going to do is help you look up words in the Bible. And you're going to be able to study those words, and you're going to be able to see every time they appear. And if you'll do that, every single time in your New Testament, when you see the word baptized or baptized, or any form of that word, you're going to see it closely associated with all kinds of different words all the time. You're going to see water. You're going to see forgiveness. You're going to see spirit and Holy Spirit and burial and being buried. I just listed out some of them. But the number one word you're going to see baptism associated with in your New Testament is Jesus. Number one, all the time. And the reason is because what happens in baptism is all about Jesus. Let me give you an example in some text, just so you know this isn't just one passage. Let me give you an example of where baptism is mentioned in other passages. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. The end of his life, Jesus is telling them uh, how to live out this mission. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. And so he's laying out a process for them. He is saying, hey, you need to go, make disciples, baptizing them, and then teaching them. If we were to take baptism and simply reduce it to an act of obedience, there's absolutely no logical reason why it doesn't fit into the teaching part. But he says, it's a process. Go and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They become Christians and then teach them to obey everything that I've taught you to do. Disciple them. It's a logical progression in the text. Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Galatia, chapter 3, verse 27, he says this, when you are baptized into Christ Jesus, you are putting on Jesus. That is the moment in time. That's so important for you to hear. That is the moment in time in which you're putting on the Lord Jesus. 
Romans chapter 6, that won't appear on the screen, but you can read the whole chapter, where Paul very specifically says, in the same way that Jesus was buried in the water and raised up to the newness of life, when we are baptized, we are dying to our old self and resurrecting in that moment to walk in the newness of life. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, it lays it out this way. It literally says, and baptism now saves you. Now, the context will tell us it's not baptism that's saving you because he says baptism, it's a moment in time. Baptism saves you through the power of the resurrection of Jesus. It's, again, there's the connection with baptism in Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 3, he says it's, it's Jesus that's doing it. You might summarize it this way. We are saved by grace, yes and amen, through faith, when? Peter would say, when you're baptized into Christ. Paul would say, when you're baptized into Christ and you put on Jesus. Luke, describing what Peter said, says it's when you are repenting and being baptized into Christ Jesus. It's a moment in time, which means it's not the water that saves you. It's not even the act that's saving you. God is saving you in that moment and in that time. Now, I emphasize this because a lot of people in the church world specifically, they, they switch this around and they'll say things like this. Maybe you've heard this. Well, baptism is simply a first step of obedience. I'm already saved. Now I step down in the water to show Jesus how much I appreciate what he already did for me in the past. That's why I do baptism. It's an outward sign of an inward grace. Maybe you've heard that. The problem is those phrases and that understanding is nowhere in the Bible. Notice this. These Jews come and they present to Jesus a very logical thing. We have a problem and we need help in solving this problem. Please help us with this problem. He does not say to them, well, your problem's already solved. Right? You're good. You, you already are. You're fine. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say to them, well, just repent. And then sometime in the near future, sometime when you get, it's convenient for you, when you can get all your family together, throw a party and have cake, get baptized. Yeah, sometime later. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say to them, well, repent, and then you're good to go. And when you mature and you grow up and you're ready and you're ready to show the world this, to show the world everything that you've done and just really represent Jesus, when you're ready for that, then you go ahead and get baptized, confirming what already took place. Before. He doesn't say that either. I mean, he lays it out pretty simply. He says, you want a solution to this, this problem? I mean, they're coming to him saying, we have guilt. Like, you've, you presented a truth to us. I feel guilt. And the question they're asking is this. How do I remove my guilt? How do I take the guilt away? And he's saying, well, there's a solution. You take your guilt away by repenting and being baptized into Christ. Now, I, I want to give you a visual for this. And so I'm going to invite my son, Luke. I don't know where he is in the room this service. Where you at, buddy? I got emotional the first two services. I'm going to get emotional again this time. I'm going to ask Luke to come up. And I'm going to model for you using uh, my buddy here. Uh, ah, there's the tears. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to model for you what takes place in baptism. I'm going to show you physically, my son here, what is happening spiritually when that takes place. Romans chapter 6 compares baptism to the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus died, he was tortured and hung on a cross. And to prove that he was really dead, they buried him to make sure he's dead. He's dead. But God, according to what uh, we just read from Peter's words, didn't leave in the, he raised him up from the dead and he resurrected, thus ushering in salvation for all people. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father, sending the Holy Spirit to come for his people. And so when we're baptized, according to Paul in Romans chapter 6, the same thing happens. There's going to come a day when Luke feels the weight of his sin. Happened a few years ago for his oldest sibling, Caleb. 
And uh, through a lot of tears, I baptized Caleb into Christ. And for his older sister, Abby, we were on vacation in Florida, and she redeemed my baptism and got baptized in the ocean instead of a pool five miles away. More on that later. (laughs) So I baptized her in the ocean in Florida because she was ready. And we came to the conclusion, she understands what's going on, and if we don't let her do this, we're holding her back. We're holding her back. And so there's going to come a day when Luke feels that, and he understands, and he's been asking questions, and we're working together on it when he understands what his sin has done between him and God, and it's going to break him. And then I've been praying for this since the day he was born. I'm going to get to hold Luke in the water, and I'm going to plug his nose like this. Not for this long, though. (laughs) And I'm going to get the privilege of lowering him and raising him up. And what happens when he's lowered is his old self is going to die, and he's going to come up to a newness of life. (laughs) Why I love that? (sighs) Because I'm always going to be his dad, like always. But on that special day, he's going to become my brother. And his life will never be the same. Thanks, buddy. You guys can make him feel good. Clap for him. There's something else that's fascinating about that. I didn't want him to stand up here forever. When you, if you were to study baptism in the Bible and look at every single time the word applies, you're going to notice in the Greek, which is the way it was originally written, it's always written in the passive tense, never in the active tense. And here's what that means. Uh, if it's always written in the passive tense, you're not doing anything. Who did all the work when I lowered Luke? Raising him up. Him or me? Me. Right? He didn't baptize himself. See, he surrendered completely in baptism. And it's the spotlight in that moment is not on Luke because he's just not doing anything for himself. And what's happening physically as I'm lowering him and raising him up has happened spiritually as God is putting to death his former self and raising him up. That's the beautiful picture of baptism. When we reduce baptism to simply being an act of obedience that we do later on, here's what happens. The spotlight is on us. We say, God, this is what I'm doing for you because of what you've already done for me. I'm going to do this for you and show it show the world what you've done for me, and I'm, I'm, I'm obeying, I'm just going to do this thing for you. And the spotlight is on what we're doing for God. The problem with that is every single time in the Bible that it's talked about, the spotlight is always on Jesus and what he's doing for the one being baptized in that very moment. And this is what Peter presented to these people, and they have to respond. And they do. Look at verse 40. As they respond to this, With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41. So those who received his word, those who heard what he said, were cut to the heart. We feel the need. I need this guilt removed. I need to become a Christian. Those who were cut to the heart by and received his word, they were baptized. Notice, if it's repeated, it's important in Scripture. you got to know that. If if the writer repeats something, it's because it's important. He doesn't repeat (laughs) repentance. Repentance is vitally important. But he's emphasizing, what did they do? He's assuming repentance and faith at this point. He's saying, and every one of them was baptized. And there were added to that number 3,000 souls that were saved. And you think 3,000 people in that day and age baptized on that day. They would have, uh, archaeologists have uncovered that there would have been 38 mitzvahs. These are giant pools right outside the temple for ceremonial washing of hundreds and thousands of different people. So logistically, it would have taken all day, but it absolutely would have been possible. And here's the other thing that's fascinating to me about that passage. He says... Those who received his word were baptized, and they didn't wait. 
They didn't say, I'm going to go home and call all my family members and get everybody back here. They didn't say, well, wait till I can fly everybody in. We can plan this thing. I got to get a photographer. This is a special day. We're going to celebrate. They didn't plan for, and I'm not trying to be offensive here, but they didn't plan for baptism Sundays where they made everybody wait until you baptize a bunch of people at once. They said, when you're ready, you do it and you do it now. And that very day, they were baptized into Christ. An invitation was extended and they responded right then and there. In his book, uh, Heaven, Randy Alcorn tells the story of a, a world-famous singer, and her name is Ruthanna Metzger. And uh, she was invited to sing at a wedding. Uh, and it was a wedding of one of the wealthiest people in, in the world. And the wedding was going to take place in Seattle, uh, Seattle, Washington. And the reception for this wedding was going to be in the Columbia Tower, which is a really exclusive place in Seattle, and most people don't have enough money to get to experience it. And so she thought, we never would be able to go to uh, this, the Columbia Tower. However, now we're getting an all-expense-paid uh, date night in this thing. We are in. And so she agrees to sing at the wedding. So the day of the wedding comes, and she shows up, and she sings at the wedding. Everything goes really well. And because this is a wedding for the wealth, one of the wealthiest people in the world, a limousine pulls up to take them to the reception. They get in the limo. I mean, they're getting the royal treatment here. They show up, and as they're walking in near this reception, they're walking closer to the entrance. They see waiters dressed in tuxedos. It's a true story. She wrote about it later, even after... Alcorn did. And uh, there's uh, tuxedos. They're wearing tuxedos, and they have all kinds of incredible food laid out. They see ice sculptures that were obviously brought in from around the world, the most beautiful art you've ever seen. She just was blown away by it. They got a glimpse into the reception hall, and they saw the most beautiful tables sat with some of the greatest-looking dessert and food you've ever seen. And they thought, we could never even dream this up. This is incredible. They get near the entrance. There's a maitre d' standing there. He says, hey, before you enter, i got to make sure that you're on the list. What's your name? True story. She said, well, Ruthanna and Roy Metzger. And he looks down the list. He says, I'm sorry, I'm not seeing your name on the list. Would you spell it for me? And so really slowly, she spells her name, like really slow. And he's, I'm sorry, your name's not on the list. And she gets a little flustered and says, you don't understand. I'm the singer. I just sang at the wedding. Like, we're invited to the reception. I was just at the wedding singing. And he responds with, it doesn't matter who you are. If your name's not on this list, you're not going to the reception. He waves a waiter over. The waiter makes his way over there, says to the waiter, would you please escort this woman and her husband to the elevators? And so ashamed, humiliated, embarrassed, she walks to the elevator. She gets on the elevator. Her husband looks over at her while they're on the elevator. She's got tears streaming down her face. And he says, what? Like, sweetheart, what is wrong? Like, what's going on? And through her tears, she says, it's my fault. It's my fault. A couple months ago when the invitation arrived, I read it, but I got distracted. Started doing some other things, and I never RSVP'd. I never responded to the invitation. Her and her husband missed out on the biggest party that city had ever seen because an invitation was sent, but they never responded. The invitation came from me November 26, 2001. Sitting in a broke-down, beat-up pickup truck outside my apartment complex in Florida. My new friend, Nate, the local youth minister, for four months had been patient with me. And he walked me through it, let me ask any questions I wanted. And he was just answering questions about what the Bible said. And then he asked me a question that day that got my attention. Shook me up. He said, Rob, I've been talking to you for four months. What's keeping you from responding to Jesus? 
So surrounded by all my new friends, I stepped down into a swimming pool, not the ocean. And he, he baptized me into Christ. My old self went into that water and died, and I was raised in the newness of life. And my life has never been the same. A couple years later, I had the privilege of walking into that same swimming pool with my mom. I got to baptize her into Christ. And one year later, she died. The hope, the hope that I have, that her sins were forgiven, and I'm going to see her again. It's an incredible gift. The same invitation that was given to her and will be given to my son Luke was given to me has been extended to you. But you have to respond. Let's pray.